Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360, Multidisciplinary Medical Information Network. Chronic pancreatitis is the main cause of exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, in adults. As many as 8 in 10 adults with chronic pancreatitis will develop EPI. As for children and infants, cystic fibrosis is the main cause of EPI, and nearly 9 in 10 infants with cystic fibrosis will develop EPI in the first year, according to the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Elissa Downs is here to speak with us today about the symptoms, screening tools used to diagnose patients with EPI, how patients with EPI should be managed, and the gaps in the research of EPI. Dr. Downs is a pediatric gastroenterologist at the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Downs. EPI is caused when the pancreas becomes damaged and can't produce the proper enzymes to digest food. Can you elaborate for us on the causes of EPI? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question to sort of think about. I mean, it's one that we're certainly learning more and more about all the time. You know, to take a step back, we know that the, the pancreas itself has two main functions, including kind of your endocrine management or management of blood sugars, and then your exocrine management or your management of digestion. And when that gets impaired, either through processes in adults, like from chronic pancreatitis or in, in children, the top cause is actually cystic fibrosis. And we don't put out enough digestive enzymes to help us with absorption. That's when we give people a diagnosis of, of EPI. So talk to us a little bit about the symptoms of EPI. Symptoms can range from kind of more on the mild side where you can just sort of see bloating, abdominal distension, and gassiness that, you know, can be confused for many other disorders versus symptoms that are more severe where you're, you know, not having more severe abdominal pain, you're having nutritional deficiencies and and the complications of, of those nutritional deficiencies. And then Ultimately, steatorrhea are kind of greasy, bulky, foul-smelling poops that are hard to flush down the toilet. Let's talk about screening tools now. What are screening tools that are used to diagnose patients with EPI? And you know, what's the gold standard, limitations, that sort of thing? We kind of break our screening tools into two major categories. We think of ones that are directly testing the pancreas and then ones that are more indirectly or measuring the pancreas, so sort of proxy measurements of the pancreas. Now, we, we love our direct tools if we can use them, but most of them involve doing some kind of stimulation of the pancreas with, with IV hormones to put out some, some pancreatic product and then kind of look at levels of both fluid output of pancreas and kind of bicarbonate amounts in the fluids. Those are, they're a little bit more time consuming, even the, the newer methods where we can do this endoscopically, they still require general anesthesia and they still require probably at least an hour of collection of the fluid of the pancreas and kind of measuring it for its bicarbonate levels. So those direct tests are not performed all that often, kind of only when we're maybe a little bit questioning of the diagnosis because we don't always necessarily want to do general anesthesia. Um, and it's not always available at kind of any medical center. So sometimes more specialized medical centers are the ones that are going to be able to do this. So we rely a lot on kind of the indirect testing of the pancreas, and that can be through different blood tests, but more often actually different poop tests. So what of the 
kind of main, I say gold, gold standard of, of poop tests that we can do is actually a 72 hour fecal fat collection, which sounds as, as obnoxious as it, as it could be, but 72 hours of collecting all of your, your fat content in those stools and then contrasting that against the fat content of your diet over those three days. So you can kind of hear that it's sort of onerous and, and not something that we usually have people do. So the, the kind of other kind of best assessments of, of stool tests is one called a fecal elastase, which measures elastase, which is a, you know an enzyme that we can find in the poop. And we use that as sort of a, a proxy measurement of, of how well the pancreas is doing with its function. It is a easy test to do relatively, and it's a little more cost-effective than some of our but it still has some ranges in, in terms of how sensitive and, and specific it can be. So it's a, a test that you can sometimes see be falsely negative, especially if the stool is diarrhea for other reasons. But it is it tends to be more sensitive and specific once people are probably pretty far into their, their EPI, so for more severe EPI. It is probably the most common test, though, that does get used. You mentioned newer methods of screening tools. Could you kind of talk to us about that newer versus the older methods? Yeah. So some of the older methods were kind of more dated procedures involving different collection tubes of for pancreatic fluid after stimulation. And so, so now some of the, the newer methods are kind of what we call endoscopic pancreatic function tests or EPFTs that are just using kind of one kind of your, your endoscope tube down into the duodenum and then collecting the pancreatic fluid over about an hour or so. There are some possibly kind of newer methods that people are using to assess pancreatic function, including some sort of stimulated MRI scans. Again, that's probably something that you're only going to really get at specialized centers and things that we'll probably need to uh, develop protocols and and guidelines for to develop those. Got it. Um, Moving on to management now, how should a patient with EPI be managed? In general, I feel like the management is pretty straightforward. So once we've established the the diagnosis of EPI, we really want to make sure that people are getting pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy or PERT. And so this is going to be something that's prescribed by a physician. And we don't necessarily want people using enzymes from from health food stores because these are not FDA regulated. And they could certainly come with a variety of other things in there that we're not intending for patients to have. So we we don't have great evidence that those are effective and they're not going to necessarily be helpful or certainly sometimes strong enough for these types of conditions. So there, there are a few FDA approved formulations of these products. It'll be very important to take them with every meal and every snack lifelong, which is crucial. So if you do miss a dose of enzymes and, and you had a meal or you had a snack, you'll have those same symptoms in it again of gassiness and bloating or pain or, or diarrhea. So taking the enzymes are incredibly important. Those enzymes contain amylase, lipase, and protease to help us break down fats, carbohydrates, and, and proteins in the, the foods that we're eating. But we also want to make sure that people are taking specially formulated pancreatic multivitamins, which are going to contain fat-soluble vitamins, our vitamins A, D, E, and K, 
because those will be at the most risk of being malabsorbed if we're not taking our enzymes or if we're not in a high enough dose of enzymes. The other things we just kind of recommend are, are kind of what we lump into that lifestyle changes category. So making sure people kind of are eating healthy, you know, making sure they're, they're not smoking if that's what they've been doing. Um, cause, cause smoking is kind of one of those main factors in pancreatitis, making sure they're not drinking or, or heavy drinking. Cause again, that's been implicated as a, a cofactor in chronic pancreatitis. And then they you don't know, staying, staying active if they can, staying hydrated if they can, those types of things. And then the last piece, I guess I'll comment on for, for that question is just kind of management of long-term complications. So some of them is just going to be screening for nutritional deficiencies at regular intervals, supplementing with extra vitamins. If we have deficiencies to help prevent bone disease and coagulopathies and, and eye problems, things like that. But then also monitoring for potential other issues of the pancreas itself. So with both endocrine and exocrine function of the pancreas, they can decline separately. And so that's not that automatically if if one declines, the other will decline as well. So long-term monitoring for the development of diabetes is going to be really important. But then also kind of management of whatever underlying condition caused your EPI in the first place. So, you know, if it is something like cystic fibrosis, you know, doing our comprehensive multidisciplinary care for the management of CF, if it's chronic pancreatitis, you know, are we enrolled in, you know, a good pain program? Are we doing say physical therapy? Are we seeing psychology? Do we need to be thinking about genetic testing, that type of thing, just to really make sure we, we understand what's causing the EPI in the first place and how to kind of lifelong monitor complications of that. And that's a good segue. You mentioned both chronic pancreatitis and cystic fibrosis. How would the management or would the management of EPI be different from the management of those other two? Yeah, it's a great question. We probably don't necessarily differentiate between the EPI caused by CF or the EPI caused by chronic pancreatitis. We're, we're going to highlight management in the same sorts of ways in terms of making sure people are on enzymes and, and vitamins and eating a healthy diet. The, the differences probably come in the, the management of those diseases from a, a multi-systems-based perspective. What would you say are the gaps in the research of EPI and what's next for research? I feel like some of the gaps in the research are just our knowledge of how common this is. You know, as I was preparing for our talk together and and doing some literature review, there's some very wide estimates of of the prevalence of EPI. And and maybe it's not something we'll really ever know because of the the myriad of, of factors that can contribute to it. But that I think is something important to think of down, down the road. Other gaps kind of include how we're, how we're treating EPI, you know, our, our enzyme products right now that we have, you know, they're all capsule based formulations, but they're all porcine based. The, the one difference would be an enzyme cartridge that we have that we can hook up in line with enteral feeds, which only contains a lipase product in it. So you're missing amylase and protease enzymes in that product. But despite that, it seems to work quite well. But, you know, 
not not the whole population of people with either a CF or with chronic pancreatitis are going to be on tube feeds and could potentially use that product. And it's also only applicable for people that are getting more continuous tube feeds, not that are getting kind of a bolus of, of feeds here and there throughout the day. Uh, so those are some of the things I'd like to see kind of the, the pancreas community work on down the road. Can we highlight an enzyme product that's not porcine based? Can we get a better sense of who, who suffers from, from EPI and, and how to help them the best? What would you say are the overall take-home messages from our conversation today? Yeah, I think one is that EPI is probably more common than we think, especially as we start to think of the the factors beyond chronic pancreatitis or beyond CF that can cause EPI. So if that's, you know, people with diabetes, people with inflammatory bowel disease, you know, people that have had uh, gastrointestinal surgeries or other surgeries on their pancreas. And then two, also sort of thinking that the, the symptoms of EPI can be kind of nonspecific. So there are certainly other people that have, you know, gassiness, bloating, and diarrhea after eating because they're lactose intolerant, or maybe they have celiac disease. And, you know, these same types of symptoms can be present in bacterial overgrowth or, or people with inflammatory bowel disease can have, you know, chronic diarrhea and nutritional deficiencies that, you know, can overlap with, with those in EPI. So how do we as physicians keep a broad differential and include EPI in that differential when we're seeing people with either nutritional deficiencies or poor weight gain or, or chronic diarrhea, and then think about the available testing methods that we have. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Downs. Is there anything else that you'd like to add today? No, but thank you so much for allowing me to speak with you today. Thank you for being on the podcast. <laughs>